The Apostles' Creed, one of the great declarations of the Christian faith that all churches uh, line up with, says this. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again. On the third day. We remember Jesus' predictions that he would suffer and die. And three days later, he would rise. Three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Three days after the cross, the tomb was empty. But notice that is not how John begins his account of the resurrection. Let's see verse 1 again. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. The first day. Notice, the first day. Now, of course, Easter Sunday did come three days after the cross, but John deliberately points our attention to something else. It was the first day of the week. Why does John do this? Well, he wants us to think about another first day. The very first first day, found right at the beginning of the Bible in its very first verse. Do you remember Genesis 1, verse 1? There's darkness on the face of the deep. Nothing but formless, chaotic, broiling waters. A void, a scene of despair. But then God speaks. Summoning things never known before. Light and life. Creation begins. And God is pleased. The first day. Now read John 20, verse 1 again. It's the first day. Again, it is dark. Chaos reigns. The disciples are scattered. The women are weeping. All is void. It is a scene of despair. But then God speaks. Summoning things never known before. Resurrection and eternal life. This is the first day of the new creation. And it all starts with Jesus. John deliberately uses this description of it being the first day to get us to twig that something earth-changing is happening here. Easter Sunday is nothing less than the turn of the ages. From the old age of sin and death to the new age of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is here now. And one day it will arrive in full. Guaranteed. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He now has his resurrection body fit to last forever. And one day we will have the same body. Guaranteed. Illness and suffering and death will be no more. At the resurrection, the new creation has begun. And God is very pleased. 
This is day one of eternity. Now this is a very bold claim that God has begun his work of new creation, restoring, repairing, fulfilling all that exists. So straight away, John feels that he needs to give us some evidence. Evidence that the resurrection of Jesus really did take place. John's account begins with the women going to the tomb in the early morning and finding that the stone had been rolled away. Now the fact that the Gospels record the women as the eyewitnesses is a sure sign that these stories were not made up. Because in the first century, no one would have written it like this. In ancient society, women were not allowed to give evidence in court. Only men's testimony was considered valid. But here, John says, it was the women who were there. No one would have written that. But John goes even further. He draws particular attention to Mary Magdalene, a woman whom seven demons had been driven out of. A scandalous woman, a woman of ill repute. Back then, you would never have made it up that it was the women who were first at the tomb. You definitely would not have made it up that it was women like Mary. Now, when Mary and the others realise that the tomb has been opened, they're worried that Jesus' body has been stolen. So they run back to Peter and John in order to get them to come and have a look. And it's now that we get to John's second piece of evidence. What those two disciples see in the tomb is so convincing to them that verse 8 tells us that John simply saw and believed. John sees something that makes him believe that Jesus is risen, even though the Bible clearly tells us he hasn't put together all the scriptures yet. He hasn't yet figured out all the promises and prophecies and how they led to this moment. He just sees something that makes him believe. What did he see? He saw the linen that Jesus' body had been wrapped up in. Now think about this for a moment. If grave robbers had taken the body, they would have taken the linen. Because that was the only thing of value in the tomb by its own right. But also, for them to undress the body would have meant that at some point they would have been sprinting through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying a naked, bloody corpse. Now this is something very, very unlikely, particularly given their ancient sensitivities about the dead. In those days, they believed you became defiled, unclean, by touching a dead body. But there's something even more curious here. The linen that had been wrapped around Jesus' body is folded neatly in one place. And the napkin that covered his face and would have been used to prevent his mouth from dropping open was folded separately to it. Great care and attention had been taken. 
Now bear in mind again that unwrapping a dead body is a very difficult thing to do. It's a very awkward, complicated task. And no robber in the world would take the time to do that. To be that precise when all the time they're worried that they're going to be caught. I mean, there's, there's a guard outside, remember. No, if this had been a robbery, be it by thieves or Romans or Jews, the scene would have been chaotic. Either there would have been no bandages at all, or they'd have been strewn all over the place. Finding the grave clothes like this, like a chrysalis that a butterfly has emerged from, was such strong evidence to John that he saw it and he believed. But still there is more evidence to come. Beyond the uh, eyewitnesses, beyond the folded grave clothes, becomes perhaps the strongest evidence of all, the transformation that takes place in Mary Magdalene. Maybe it was because Jesus had been so kind to her in the past, removing seven demons from her, that Mary was so distraught. Ask any person who's grieving today, and they miss the people who love them the most. Mary Magdalene was distraught. She'd gone with all the other women in the early morning when they first found the tomb to be open. But then we find in verse 11, when all the other disciples had gone home, she goes back all on her own. It's one final vigil of grieving, heartbroken love. And as she bends there, she's weeping so vociferously that two angels turn up in order to comfort her. And we find that she is so numb with her grief that when she first sees Jesus, she doesn't even recognize him. She thinks he is the gardener. Grief does strange things to us at times. Mary is consumed by grief. She is utterly overwhelmed by grief. She doesn't even recognize the person she is grieving over. And yet, by verse 18, Mary is full of joy and full of praise. She's shouting glad tidings from the rooftops. Ask yourself this question. What possibly could have transformed Mary from that depth of grief to that height of joy in such short time other than meeting Jesus? As John writes his gospel, he believes that nothing else could have done this. Nothing could have transformed that sorrow into dancing other than Mary meeting Jesus alive. And John believes this real eyewitness testimony is strong evidence indeed. Now let's turn a little bit more and think more deeply about what Jesus said to Mary as he meets with her and turns her life around. I want to focus particularly on verses 16 and 17. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The appearance begins with an act of great compassion. Jesus calls her by her name, Mary. And suddenly after the confusion about the gardener, it was unmistakably Jesus. Only Jesus could have known her name. Only he spoke with that tone of voice, so loving and so tender. I like what the scholar Tom Wright has written about this verse. When Jesus calls her name, Mary, Tom Wright says it's a greeting, a consolation, a gentle rebuke. Come on, don't you know me? And an invitation all rolled into one. Mary, 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 Mary. It's the ultimate personal touch. Back in John 10, Jesus had taught his followers that the good shepherd knows his sheep by name and calls them out. Well, Jesus is the good shepherd and he's alive and he's done exactly that. And Mary responds to this wonderful intimacy in kind. She runs towards him and she embraces him, crying out, my teacher. Again, a very personal title. It's a perfectly understandable display of love to her friend who had changed her life by the way he had accepted her and forgiven her and healed her. Her friend who she'd seen die so horribly, but was now standing before her. So the very first thing that arisen Jesus does for Mary is he shows her compassion. But after the compassion comes something that we might not have expected. Correction. As Mary grips on to the physical body of Jesus, he says to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Those words take us back a little bit, don't they? What does that mean? Well, they mean that this moment of loving embrace was not to become introverted and exclusive of others. Mary was clinging on to a particular view of Jesus that was rooted in his earthly ministry. And that was fine as far as it went prior to the cross. But now, after the resurrection, it was inadequate. Mary needs to expand her horizons because Jesus has changed. And so now must she. She needs to begin to grasp the implications that Jesus hasn't just been risen from the dead for her, not just for the disciples even, but for the whole world. The whole of creation. This is the first day, remember. And notice that Mary isn't upset by this correction. She doesn't see it as a rebuff. She trusts what Jesus, her friend and master, says. When we're deeply grieving, we all need our perspectives to be corrected a little. We need to be encouraged to look up and look out from ourselves that there is a new purpose in life now. 
And Mary, as Jesus corrects her, discovers that she has a new role in life, and it's immense. She's got the star part in the next few moments. Because she's going to be the one to tell the others the good news. So after the compassion and the correction, the scene ends with calling Jesus doesn't want Mary to cling on to him now because time is short. His next task is urgent. In just 40 days, he's going to ascend back up to his Father in heaven. And before that comes, he's got a lot to do. He's got a lot of people to meet. And this imminent return of Jesus back to heaven is the basis for Mary's calling. She is the one to be the carrier of the good news. And he gives her her calling. Go. Go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, in those few words, we get a glimpse of what Jesus' life and death and resurrection have all been about. Incredibly, we are now invited to be part of the family of God. Jesus here doesn't call his followers friends or servants or disciples. He calls them brothers and sisters. And he's not just going to his father and his God, but he tells Mary, I'm going to your father and your God. As I tried to state at the start of this sermon, this is the moment of great transition. Because of the cross, we have been forgiven for our sins. Because of the resurrection, the way has been paved for us to spend eternity with God. And in a few days' time, Jesus will ascend back to his Father and pour out the Holy Spirit, adopting us all into his great family. What news this is. What precious news. The best news. The best news of all time. And how incredible it is that God would choose Mary Magdalene to be the bearer of it. Fearful Mary. Overwhelmed Mary. Mary of the seven demons and the checkered past. But God loves doing amazing things through weak people. God can use anybody for his purposes and it brings the glory to him. So in this incredible meeting with the risen Jesus, Mary's life is transformed. He shows her compassion. He corrects her grieving misunderstandings. And he calls her to a new life that will never be the same again. This is the first day. The first day of her life. The first day of new creation. The first day of the rest of of history. And John is pleading with us to see, look, here is the evidence. Here is the evidence. Jesus is alive. Believe in this, and it'll be day one for you as well. And that's how I want to finish. Because as I said with the children, I believe this is a hundred percent true. And I believe that lives are still being transformed today. When we put our trust in the risen Jesus. Jesus still calls people by name and treats them with compassion. Happened to me back in the year 2000. 
That was day one for me. Jesus still corrects those who love him and follow him. There is stuff in our lives that needs to be sorted out. He's been working on me all these years and there's a lot more to go. But he does it with love and gentleness. And Jesus gives all those who love him a calling. A calling to announce the good news. To declare that new creation has begun. And he wants us to tell our friends and our families, our neighbours and our communities. So I'll finish with a question. Do you know the risen Jesus? Do you know when the first day was for you? How are you living out your calling today?